It's the early 2000s. Diva Pager, the late Harvard sociologist, is a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's there to study racial inequality, particularly in the job market, and she also volunteers at a center for jobless men. It's at the center that she keeps meeting job seekers who share a similar story. I'm a father. I'm a hard worker. I served my, I, I did my probation, no violations. Model citizen. They called me in the office and said, um, your record came back, we gotta let you go. This is Ronald Lewis, speaking to PBS NewsHour about his struggle to find and hold a job with a criminal record. Diva spoke with a lot of Ronalds, men who were capable and articulate, and yet seemingly unemployable for jobs that should have been well within their reach. It made her wonder. Is this something that we should be investigating more systematically? But I also wanted to look at how race interacted with this variable. What Diva found transformed how we think about race bias in hiring. In this episode, we explore this bias and the data showing how it can hurt both applicants and employers. Welcome to Outsmarting Implicit Bias. Diva Pager wanted to explore just how much race and criminal record were affecting employment prospects. So she conducted an experiment. Specifically a field experiment. This means that she went out of the lab and into the world to answer her question. In this case, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I hired young men to pose as job applicants for real entry-level positions, positions that required no more than a high school degree. These were jobs like cook, cashier, delivery driver, and warehouse worker. And I assigned them fictitious resumes that reflected identical levels of schooling and work experience. And they learned how to respond to employment interviews in very standardized ways. Behavior, qualifications, everything was the same, except the two things Diva was investigating. Race. I had one pair of white testers and one pair of black testers. And whether or not they had a felony drug conviction. The data showed that applicants were half as likely to get the job or even a callback when they had a criminal record. This is disturbing, but perhaps not surprising. The real shock came when she looked at race. Black applicants with a clean record fared no better than white applicants who'd just been released from prison. Put another way, to employers being black was viewed as equivalent to having a felony conviction. When I share this finding with people, The question I hear most is, oh my God, this can't be true everywhere, can it? After all, Milwaukee was one of the most segregated cities in America at the time. But Diva conducted the study again, this time in New York City. New York has got a huge amount of racial diversity. And found the same results. This bias was robust. And in their 2004 study, Economists Marianne Bertrand and Sundal Mullanathan showed that it was happening even before employers set eyes on the candidate. In fact, all they had to see was the name on the resume. Is there a difference between black and white names? And if so, what's the difference? The Yaffa show posed this question to various people, and it's clear from their responses that we do have intuitions about what names sound white. Anna. Stephanie. Brad. Gregory. Dean. Dylan. Or black. Jamal. Laquisha. Tamika. I'm kind of old, so I go back to thinking stuff like Jackson or Tyrone or Denzel. Marianne and Sendel randomly assigned either a white or black-sounding name to almost 5,000 resumes that were matched for quality. 
and then sent them to employers all over Boston and Chicago. They wanted to know just how much inferences about race were influencing hiring decisions. All else being equal, the Emilys and Greggs received 50% more callbacks than the Lakeishas and Tyrones. Hearing about these kinds of hiring errors may hurt your sense of reason, but the data suggests that practicing them can also hurt your business. So there's a classic theory in economics that suggests that those that have a taste for discrimination have to pay a price for indulging that taste. Diva is referencing the work of economist Gary Becker. His model suggests that if a company's prejudice keeps them from hiring good candidates because of race, no matter how talented the person, that company will lose out in the market. It won't have the best people, and so it should be more likely to fail. This theory is well accepted, but it's been hard to test until the 2008 recession. The Dow tumbled more than 500 points after two pillars of the street tumbled over the weekend. The U.S. economy continues to bleed jobs. More than three and a half million jobs have been lost since the recession began in December. A record number of businesses closed during the financial crisis. The greatest decline since 1945. And that made Diva think, does Becker's theory hold? Did the companies that showed discriminatory hiring suffer more during the economic downturn? In 2004, she had sent job candidates to 170 New York employers. Now she asked which of them were still around in 2010, two years after the recession. She cross-referenced national databases across the two years and came to a striking conclusion. Those that we'd observed discriminating in 2004 were in fact much more likely to go out of business six years later than those that hadn't discriminated. By 2010, 36% of discriminatory businesses had failed. That's more than twice the percentage of businesses that had shown no racial bias. To be clear, this is a single study, and it doesn't necessarily mean that discriminatory practices cause businesses to fail. Diva's own theory? Employers that rely on their gut instincts rather than more systematic kinds of evidence maybe led astray both in their hiring decisions as well as in other decisions about firm management. So rather than one causing the other, biased hiring and business failure could both be consequences of an over-reliance on shortcuts during decision-making. So how can we make sure the right information is factoring into our decisions? Some minority job seekers whiten their resumes. My name is Cortina. I shorten my name to just Tina. Or shift the focus onto their accomplishments. When I'm applying to places, I really try to get Princeton somewhere in the first three words of that subject line. But if we really care about getting the best talent, we need to take the responsibility off the shoulders of applicants and into our own hands as organizations. First, stop relying on intuition that isn't backed by evidence. If you remember our video about faces and first impressions, you know how completely gut instinct can fail us. Race, name, hobbies, social class. The research shows that these details affect our decisions, whether we know it or not. So if the information is unnecessary, find ways to filter it out before the resume hits your desk. And once you're ready to interview, ask each candidate the same questions in the same order and evaluate them the same way. This is called the structured interview. And it helps you compare only the relevant skills and experience across all your applicants. So try it. Because finding a job is hard, and finding the right candidate is hard too. 
but we can all benefit by ignoring the irrelevant details and focusing on the evidence. This episode is in memory of Dr. Diva Pager, professor of sociology and the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. Outsmarting Implicit Bias is a project founded by Mazarin Banaji, devoted to improving decision-making using insights from psychological science. This episode was written by Olivia Kang, Kirsten Morehouse, Evan Younger, and Mazarin Banaji, and featured Professor Diva Pager and voices from NPR's Hidden Brain and The Yaffa Show. Support comes from Harvard University, PwC, and Johnson & Johnson. Sound editing and mixing was done by Evan Younger. Music was composed by Miracles of Modern Science. For references and related materials, visit outsmartingimplicitbias.org. 